You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 66. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Check us out at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and more. Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. This episode is sponsored by Linode. You can have your server up and running in seconds. They have SSD storage with a 40 gigabit network and powered by Intel Xeon E5 processors. They have data centers in Asia Pacific, North America, and Europe. Mess up your network settings? You can still get into your instance with the Lish Virtual Console. Linode has a robust set of developer APIs to control your instances programmatically. They even have custom stack scripts with some Q&As and custom built instances to meet your needs. Get started with Linode today and get $20 off using the code CODINGBLOCKS17 by heading to www.codingblocks.net slash Linode. That's L-I-N-O-D-E. And as always, we like to get started with the reviews that people have left us. We we were almost going to postpone this episode because we didn't have enough. We we're, <laughs> we're going to like set it back like a couple more weeks. No, totally kidding. Um, I, I guess I'm taking the iTunes reviews today because we don't have anybody's names by it. So we've got Lazarus, Really Old Coder, and The Jungin. <laughs> All fantastic names. Uh, I'm calling dibs on uh, Stitcher just because I wanted to say Frost-Blooded, Jehuzala, uh, and Andre Macedo. Very nice. And we apologize for butchering everyone's names. But we thank you very much for leaving them. I, as always, Absolutely. we read each one of them probably two or three times, you know, as we do. You know, um, talking about reviews, we got uh, quite a bit of feedback on a certain word we used last episode. <laughs> so... What we're curious about is how do you actually pronounce the word kludge? Is it kludge or is it kludge? It can't be kludge. That just no, sounds wrong. I've never heard that. It's a kludge. So overwhelmingly, the feedback we got was that it's pronounced kludge. No, they're yep. wrong. They, they got to <laughs> be wrong. <laughs> you, know, you know what? So speaking of that, also on the last episode, uh, you know, we occasionally do the GIF versus, you know, the wrong way to say it. And, <laughs> and uh, Ambix left us a, a message on episode 65, and he's like, yeah, so people who say it like GIF are terrible people. <laughs> so <laughs> apparently I'm a terrible person. I could never say GIF. That just is wrong. Well, uh, Paul Spoon over the Slack channel, uh, he mentioned uh, the idea of making the word kludge as difficult to say as possible. So kludge sounds almost too smooth. So maybe like a kludge? A kludge. A, cl- a kludge. A kludge is pretty good, yeah. <laughs> oh, that just, like, I think my ears are bleeding. <laughs> That's the point. It's all wrong. It's kludge. There's, it's not even a debate. I don't even care if Merriam-Webster's has it differently. It's They can't be wrong. All right. Yeah. I can't be wrong. All right. <laughs> and so, hey, uh, by the way, for these these show notes, these beautiful, full-length, you know, detailed show notes, you can get those at codingblocks.net slash episode 66. I think you meant to say these are pixel-perfect show notes. Of course they are. <laughs> there would be no other way. Um, also, hey, I do want to point out, so Ambix said that funny thing about the GIFs versus GIFs. Um, he also pointed out uh, my tip, I think, on maybe episode 64 was about table value or 
Yeah, table UDTs. value parameters. Yeah, and UDTs in SQL Server. And he said that you have to be careful because at least in SQL Server 2012, it would confuse the query optimizer sometimes mm-hmm. and, and it would just take forever. And I do want to point out, he said the way to fix it is the first line of your stored proc is select everything from that TVP into a temp table, right? Um, I will say it's not unique to just this. I've definitely seen situations where the query optimizer just goes haywire, right? right. And you have to do stupid things like your input parameters, set them to local variables yep. or, you know, random things. So. Right. Now, was I, did I misread that though? Because it kind of sounded like hit what he was describing though was if you had like thousands of a rows lot of, a lot of in data. the, uh, the UD, the, UDT that you were passing in, right? Yeah. Were you, but the example that you were describing, were you talking about passing in thousands of rows or were you just talking about like general use configuration yeah. kind of thing? No, both. I mean, whatever. Like I, I wasn't putting any limits on it. Hmm. You know, I, I mean, Joe, you've had the inverse experience, right? Where people would pass things in as common delimited lists or whatever, and you turn it into terrible. Yeah. And then you turn it into a table value parameter and all of a sudden it screams, right? So, and, yep. and thousands of records, right? Yeah, you name Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, I mean, so the TVP, UDT, whatever, uh, is pretty awful, but so is lists, and so is, I mean, just really doing a lot of stuff. Like, if you're working with thousands of records, like many, many thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of records, uh, you're going to have a lot of problems, and uh, you're going to be doing some ugly, ugly stuff to get around it. Yeah. Well, I, I raised this because... Um, the way, if I recall, the way you introduced this tip was you were talking about um, like common delimited lists and and like if you did use the stuff or something like that to create the list and then you were like trying to parse it out, right? And I was thinking in my head that you wouldn't be doing this string parsing on like thousands of entries that you were only going to be doing it like you're doing it as a shortcut for like configuration kind of options that you want to pass in, or maybe there's a better way to say that, but some like, you know, limit. Yeah. Like a handful, a dozen kind of things. And so that's why I was curious if, you know, when you were originally describing it, if that's, you know, which direction we were going. Cause I, I actually had two different directions. And so one was bigger, bigger things. So, you know, instead of passing a common delimited list of, you know, a thousand entries, do it in the table value parameter way. But more importantly, I think the the more useful use case other than just sheer size of data is keeping related things together, right? Because I've seen things where people would pass in three lists and they were all coordinated, right? Like item one had to match up, item two had to match up. And mm-hmm. that's a horrible way of doing it, right? Because now you're relying on delimiters to make sure that that data is parsed out properly. Whereas if you do the table value parameter approach, it's you think about it like a table, right? Everything's going to be on row one. Everything's going to be on row two. They're all going to be in their proper columns. So that's how yeah, I was thinking about it. You know what, though? That's It's a common misconception, but I'm pretty sure underneath the hood, SQL Server is actually telling it keeps things stored in the same ways it, it basically uses a comma then a pipe and then an equal sign and then a semicolon it's got this whole hierarchy of delimiters that it, it uses to keep track of stuff i think you're i'm pretty the, sure no i'm pretty sure you're making the <laughs> i mean that's how i would do it if i were on the sql server team so See, he's got a smile on his face right now so kind of can't trust anything he's saying right 
You guys ever have you ever been in like a mixed crowd of people, or whatever? You're hanging out somewhere, and you or you know maybe you're in a line in the movies or something, and you hear someone in the line say something like, "Yo, listen, I'm a programmer, and I can vouch for this thing." And they they say something that's just awful and terrible or just really dumb, and you just like want to go there and be like, "Hey, I'm a programmer too. I'm gonna choke you now." <laughs> you <laughs> have anger anger issues. <laughs> I thought it was going to be more. I thought he was going more along the lines of. Like, hey, I'm a programmer. I know things. Oh, yeah. Well, then why is the internet down? <laughs> that, yeah. that. I'll be like, no, listen, I'm a programmer. I've been doing it for like one year. And I could I could tell you right now that I could write Facebook in a weekend. Yeah, you know, totally. Like, yeah. You kind of, you kind of, um, I don't know that we ever talked about this, but you, you, you mentioned something kind of glossed over it. And I think, it, I think there's actually a name for it too, where you mentioned uh, saving a copy of the, um, the arguments passed in to a local variable and I think it's called like input shadowing or what is it? Sniffing, parameter shadowing. Uh, parameter, parameter sniffing. sniffing. Parameter there sniffing. Because SQL Server tries to parameter sniff and sometimes it screws up, which is really weird and it causes hours of frustration. But wait a minute. Wait a minute though. Because for those that don't know parameter sniffing and I, I'm, I might be pointing at myself, could we go into more detail about parameter sniffing? For a moment. Well, uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but basically the deal is the optimizer uh, doesn't do a great job. And I think it has to do with um, when the data structures underneath are where the statistics change a lot. So if you have a table that changes a lot, like, uh, you know, has a lot of new records added daily or something. Uh, but it just doesn't do a very good job of knowing when to kind of recompile and run the query differently. And so one trick to kind of get around that is to always um, set your set local variables that just copy the uh, arguments that you pass in and it kind of forces the optimizer to kind of redo the work, I guess. It's bizarre. Um, yeah. Just because we're talking in a stored procedure in a stored proc. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing too, that can confuse it a lot of times is we've talked about this with static analysis on, on regular programming, but when you have a bunch of if else loops, right? Like your complexity gets high. Once the complexity gets so high in a stored proc, you start seeing these same type problems. So if you have a bunch of if else, if else, if else things on there, the query optimizer is basically like, I can't, I can't do this properly. It, it's really bizarre. And you would think that you'd just be able to do like, you can set with recompile to make the stored procedure recompile every time. But for some reason, parameter sniffing, I don't know why, but it just doesn't seem to, to, uh, to, to hit it all the time. And so you're going to know what there's going to come a day. If you're working with SQL server and a lot of data, you're going to hit this one day and you're going to be pulling your hair out and you're not going to understand. And like, you're going to stumble upon this weird person in stack overflow that says, Oh man, just set a local variable. And right. You're going to be at the end of your rope and you're going to try it and it's going to work. <laughs> and then you're going to be mad. <laughs> and you're going to be mad. <laughs> yeah. It's bizarre. I, and we've gone off on a tangent here, but I think it is important though that the table value parameter thing, like anything with SQL Server, there can be weird things happen depending on the size of data and the type of variables being used and all that. So it's a legitimate thing that he pointed out. And the way that he got around it is sort of like this parameter sniffing thing. He just took everything from that and turned it into a temp table immediately before he started doing anything else. And that sort of forced SQL Server to reset how it thought about that proc, which is crazy. Absolutely crazy talk, but sometimes that works. So, um, yeah. Hey, thanks for that. Thanks for writing that in. And also, man, Joe recurs and Joe, he, he, he writes us several times on various different episodes. And we talked about the magic push button in the last episode about how there's these random things, man. We're going to have a link to uh, episode 65 in here in the show notes. You must click it and go look at this page because it's a perfect example of just 
beyond dozens of fields and I'm sure that nothing validates. You're going to click about 30 things on that page and hit save and it's going to be like, no, this, this doesn't match this. <laughs> and you're going to go, really? Like, really? So that was, that was beautiful. Oh, I, and so here was the thing that's, it's not new news, but it's been going around and man, I don't remember what episode it was that we talked about open source licensing and all that kind of stuff, but it's a big deal. Like we, the three of us know it's a big deal for the various different places we've worked at. So, um, there's a thing coming around now that just cranked back up recently. It's on hacker news. It's, it's all over the place with Facebook patent licensing. So Apache Software Foundation basically just proclaimed that you can't use any of the Facebook licensed BSD projects in their projects. So basically, if if you have an old project that was using some of the Facebook technologies, it's fine to continue using it. But anything that wasn't using it or hadn't been released, it is banned. You cannot do it. And I don't know the exact specifics on it, but it was basically something along the lines of, um, in this one article, they spelled it out pretty well. I thought it was something along the lines of, if you sue us, you lose the right to use our software. It, it was, if you sue Facebook, you lose the right to use Facebook's software. That, you also cannot write anything that competes with them. So if you write anything... That, that, that was the other part of it that I thought was interesting. So if you decided to write your own little social networking type mm -hmm. thing and you utilized any of their tools, you're going to have to scrap it. Like, so it's kind of interesting, right? Like you can't go after them legally for any reason, which I mean, you could argue that, hey, yeah, that's not really fair, right? You're using their tools. You shouldn't really be going after them for that. But on the flip side, you can't use it to write whatever you want because who knows what they come back and say, oh, no, that competes with one of our image things or that competes with one of our social networking things. or that You know, like they've got a ton of technologies now that they use. So who knows what you would be stepping on? That's a real shame because based off of the Coding Box community, I was deep into uh, my development of my new social platform using <laughs> React and GraphQL that I was, uh, you know, I was going to call FaceBlocks, but I guess now. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. Uh, that's fine. You just got to switch it over to Aurelia or something. So that goes back to, uh, you mentioned uh, when we last talked about open source licensing, that takes us all the way back to episode five. Wow. We still don't understand open source licensing, and that was four years ago, and yeah, that title is still true today. Man, that's amazing, episode five. And honestly, a lot hasn't changed since then, right? Like, there's still so much gray area, and that's basically why these things still come up. I mean, it's it's a shame, but it is that's just what it is. Um, all right, so the next thing, I'm only going to touch on it briefly. I don't know how deep I want to go into this because technically it's against the terms of service and all that kind of stuff when you do this. But I built a Hackintosh, and man, I got to say, I love it. Oh, you're it. breaking the law. No, I, we're done. Right? It's over. Time it's, out. All right, let's, let's, it's time to kill this podcast. Gosh. Um, so no, I created one. I'm dual booting. I have Windows and, and Mac OS running. It's a fairly ridiculous machine, but I got to say, like, I am really happy with it. You're hooked? I, I am hooked. Like, I'm pretty excited. And I'll tell you the one thing that I, it, things have gotten ridiculous in my life. Like, I, I really enjoy silence. Like, one of my favorite parts of this machine, other than the graphics card, is 
the CPU fan I bought for this. It's a Noctua. I think it's a DS15S or, or D15S or something. Dude, this thing is ridiculous. It's it's like twice the size of any normal CPU cooler. It is silent. Silent. Oh, I remember looking at this one. Yeah. Dude, and it cools better than most. the D15S, you said. D15S. It has 12 heat pipes on it. 12, man. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and it's, again, silent. Just dead silent. And it cools better than most water cooling solutions out there. Now, it's not as pretty as water coolers by any means, but it's awesome. So anyways, that's, I will say I did follow some guides out there. Uh, you know, I stuck with most of the hardware and overall I, I really love it. I, I haven't had any issues. I've edited some videos, edited some audio all as well. Yeah. I remember reading some reviews about that one. Cause that one was a pretty well, uh, it's received. got perfect reviews on Amazon. Yeah. There's not very many products you ever see that have perfect, perfect reviews on Amazon. They're all five stars. Like there might be one four star in there. Yeah, it's it's amazing, man. Yeah, and it's got like this really cool kind of vintage look about it with the color of the fan. It's almost like um it it looks like a scene out of Star Wars. Yeah, it's the, weird. The 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 two tone two shades of tan that they chose for it. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take a shot of the inside of, of my setup and, and I'll put the image on this particular uh, show notes page. It, it's really pretty. Like, um, so, so you, you're saying then that you didn't bling it out with uh, like LEDs and no, it's the, the motherboard's got LEDs all over it. My power supply has LEDs. My graphics card has LEDs. It's it's all lit up. It's but no, amazing. But not like a lighting kit or anything like that? No, but it has a header for hooking up additional LEDs. Right. And, and I'm starting to feel like a little kid. Like, I'm going to put some neons on my car now. Like, right. that's, that's what I feel that's like. What you do. <laughs> yeah. That's what you do. That's what you do. Yeah, so. After the subwoofers, though. And you got to have the subs in And there. the rims. Yes. Yeah. Have some rims. Oh, you could even make the LEDs inside the case play with music so if you're playing music it'll actually pulse to the beats and man i like i feel like a little kid again yeah yep all right exciting times yes all right i know this news is already getting long but i had to sneak one more in here i started kind of thinking about sql server and some of the weird behavior and some of the things i always gripe about like not being able to dynamically order by variables or whatever and i started thinking you know what what if sql server was built on alien technology <laughs> i read yeah, that what if they literally technology <laughs> <laughs> it's built on Allen technology. It scales to everyone. It does. <laughs> I mean, we've, we've got the pyramids. We, you know, we don't really. We're not real clear on how that happened. Who shot JFK? We still don't know. Long Island Medium. I mean, maybe this is is up there. You know, maybe that's why we still are dealing with this like 1980s syntax. We don't have the sugar. We've got these weird things that like no one really understands. Like I'm pretty sure no one in the world really understands why perennial happens. And, and maybe it's you know not of this earth. I'm just saying. It's possible. It's very Think about possible. It. <laughs> and so, well, anyway, you know, I, I started Googling great mysteries of the earth to see if it was listed anywhere. It's not, but there's a lot of freaky stuff out there on the <laughs> internet if you look for like the world's greatest mysteries. I'm pretty spooked right now. I, I like how Joe sounds kind of shocked that there's a lot of freaky stuff out there on the internet. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. But hey, you want to know what's really sort of ironic about this? You said, is it alien? You know what Microsoft's new... Um, cloud database is called, right? Cosmos, Cosmos DB. DB. Coincidence? I think not. There's something to it. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, getting back to planet Earth. Um, I did ask people in a recent contest uh, via the mailing list what the preferred title was. 
and we got some really great responses and I shut the tab, but I'm opening it right now. I do know that <laughs> developer won with 51% of the vote and uh, engineer was a, a close second with 31%. And what I thought was really interesting is a lot of the people who responded and did say um, developer would say, and even the people who chose engineer, they all kind of had a little story about it. It was like, well, I work at an engineering firm and the mechanical guys give me the stink eye, so I say developer. Or I really think engineer, but kind of, you know, it's a, either a protected term in the country where I live or or some other reason why they ended up choosing developer. So it does seem to me that even though developer won by a, a healthy margin, I literally had the majority, it did feel to me like engineer was still the preferred term. You know what's funny about that? The one thing, there was one comment I read when you posted this up on Reddit that I thought was probably the most true of anything anybody said was, I put whatever will get me the next job the best. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly. <clears throat> yeah, and we'll put uh, the link to the Reddit in there because uh, we did get, I think it was like 170 really, really good comments. Um, like, I mean, 130 of those were probably like mean jokes, but like <laughs> the 40 or so were really good ones. I'm kidding. They were all really good. Uh, we're, we're all really good. And it was just kind of interesting to hear people talk about the reasons behind it. So what was your choice? What was yours? Uh, whatever will get me the next job. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh, that was your comment. Uh. <laughs> no, uh, I, I don't really have a preferred term. What about you guys? Alan? Uh, I think maybe from my Amazon days, I like, I prefer engineer. And I, and I treat it like an engineering type thing. Like I, I literally treat it like a problem. It's not just hack away type stuff. Like, right. so I, I think that's, that's what I internalize more. I agree. I, I, I like engineer better too, because it feels like it's more, you're taking a bigger picture, you know, into the, into the equation. Like you're, you're looking at something more holistically. Yeah. I'm not a task doer. Like right. you don't just give me a task. I'm going to do a task. I, I, I want to think about how it integrates and how it works with everything. Yeah. So that's, I, that's why I feel like that. I do understand though, that in certain places of the world, engineer is a protected term. Like it, it means that you have certain types of education. That's the guy that's education. in charge of the train. <laughs> there you <Yeah>. go. <laughs> there you go. Uh, bringing it back around. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, awesome. Um, yeah, and uh, a lot of people did say with like the terms like programmer and coder too, like they felt that was only a very small portion of the job. It's like kind of like, like calling yourself a typist, right? It's a, only a, a very small thing. So they didn't really like that term. Um, I guess well, if they were to be program. more accurate, then instead of programmer or coder, it should just be like uh, code reader. Oh, yeah. man. <laughs> That's 90% of your job, right? That's right. That's a very good point. <laughs> Um, well, you know, kind of on that note, the next story I want to mention is, uh, especially for people who are listening to this podcast right now, uh, there's an article that came out re recently uh, from a blind programmer who uh, kind of talks about the way that he works and uh, deals with kind of listening to code uh, audioly and, and kind of um, working and dealing with that. And they actually played a couple snippets of how um, what he hears at the speed that he listens to in this blog post. And man, I know a lot of listeners will listen at like, you know, one and a half, two, two and a half maybe speeds. Um, this listening to these audio blips at 450 words per minute, it sounds like a modem. Like, I just can't imagine parsing stuff. You know, but I do think about, you know, I could kind of scroll through a file pretty quickly and, you know, get a feel for what's going on without necessarily seeing every word. So I don't know if that's what's going on here, but I was pretty impressed here in the audio. That's awesome. Man, that's crazy to think about. 450 yeah. words a minute. I mean, I'm just trying to think like how you would even 
you're scrolling, you know, quote, scrolling through a file to get somewhere into the middle of it to figure something out, right? Via audio. Only by listening to the code being read to you at 450 words per minute. Just shows you how impressive the human mind really is, right? I mean, it adapts. It's pretty, that's incredible stuff. Yeah, yeah. And when you're like, hmm, if he like visualizes that in his head at all, but then I guess, why would you? Yeah. Because if you're blind, why would you visualize anything maybe? I yeah. don't know. I, I don't know how it works. Crazy thought, yeah, I guess. It's cool stuff. Hmm. That was a great article. We'll have a link uh, in the show notes and you can read about it. Yep. Yeah, if only there was a link. <laughs> <laughs> We'll have it. And uh, also, uh, we didn't mention earlier, but uh, we are on new microphones tonight. So uh, let us know uh, how, what you think of the sound. Yeah, if it's bad, don't tell us. We, we don't <laughs> want to know. <laughs> <laughs> we would, uh, yeah, after the money spent, we might cry if you couldn't hear us. Yeah. But no, seriously, we, we'd love to hear what you think. I mean, we're always trying to go for the best audio, give you guys the best listening experience. So, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's supposed to be great for voices and kick drums. So. Yes. And we have both. <laughs> so with that, let's head into the main topic of tonight's episode. Project management anti-patterns. And last time we talked about software design anti-patterns, which were kind of arranged by an article we found on uh, Wikipedia. And so tonight we're just taking a slightly different stab and looking at things from the project management point of view, which is a point of view that I like to beat up on a lot. Yeah. Because they beat up on me. <laughs> yeah, I think I think uh, we'll all have some opinions on these. So the first one is the cart before the horse. And this is, I mean, this was about as short and sweet as it could possibly be. It was focusing too many resources on a stage of a project at the wrong time, out of sequence. So if you haven't heard the cart before the horse before, that literally just means the horse is usually pulling the cart. So putting the cart before the horse doesn't make any sense, right? So that's all this is. I, I'm sure we've all seen this happen, right? Like people will will um, maybe start putting too much resources into planning something when, when the piece that they're getting ready to integrate with isn't even built yet. You know, things like that. Like it, the, there's so many different ways that this can happen. And, and it really stinks when it does too, because a lot of times it's just wasted effort. Yeah, one example I like to think of was like uh, you go off to start, like say uh, you're going to create an, the, the next big uh, multiplayer video game and you spend the first three months working really hard on like encrypting your database or, you know, getting OAuth just perfect. And in the meantime, you don't actually have game. You don't know what you're doing. Like all these things are, are bypassing you because you're focusing way too much energy on something that is uh, just not important. It's not in the right priority order. You know, I'm glad you said that because I was having a hard time trying to think about this because as I was, as you guys were talking about this, I was thinking of it like, well, this seems very contradictory to the MVP, right? Because, you know, you're, as Alan was speaking, I was like, well, it almost kind of sounds like we're saying that you should have like, you know, hard set lockdown requirements before you start coding. But if we're going down the MVP pattern, we want to just start writing. We want to start coding as soon as possible. We want to start getting stuff out there, get user feedback sooner rather than later. You know, that kind of uh, mentality. So, you know, it's okay to fail, um, but fail quickly, fail soon, and, you know, let it be in like smaller doses, right? But then as you said that, then I'm like, oh, 
Well, here's an example that Alan could totally relate to because this would be focusing on scaling your application <laughs> to a babillion concurrent users before you finish writing the app, right? But that's important. <laughs> I mean, it is. I'm not going to take that away from you. But I mean, we've, a whole lot of cars. It's been a, little, a joke. Little horse. It's been an yeah. ongoing joke, though, yeah. you know, for it's a true. while. So, like, it's I was true. like, oh, yeah, okay, there you go. There you go. Uh, you, totally you focus true. on on the scalability of your application before you even finished the application or even started. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you know if you're starting to do this? Man, that's, I, that's a harder question to answer, right? Like, I think that, I think that if you are, if you've got a bunch of people sitting around all pontificating on what's getting ready to happen and there's zero traction on any front and these these continue, right? Like I'm not talking about on day one, right? But if you're two weeks into it and there's still no traction on anything, then you can kind of look at it and say, wait a second, why are, why are we wasting our time on this right now? Apparently we're not ready to get rolling on this. So maybe we should focus on the other things that need to be done first so that we can come back to this, right? Like, I, I think it's a thing that has to be gauged after a certain amount of time has been spent and you see that there is no traction. All right. What if I were to phrase it like this? You're, you focus your concern or your worry on something that isn't even yet a problem. That's possible. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's definitely a way to see that. Well, I could definitely drift there, especially if I'm just kind of coding on a side project and I'll start like refactoring, refactoring, refactoring for all these things I'm, I'm not going to need. I'm, I'm yagging, right? Like, how do I prevent that from happening? One way I was kind of thinking is like, if I have a set milestone, like say in two weeks, I want to be here. Or if I can schedule like periodic demos, um, then those will be ways of kind of preventing this. And if I'm scared to do e either of those things, if I'm scared to write down what I think is most important or I'm scared to schedule a demo, then maybe I'm already putting the cart before the horse and thinking about things backwards. Possibly. Yeah, I, this one's tough because it's so unique to every situation, right? Like, if you're talking about what ifs, that might even be something, right? Like, why, mm -hmm. why are you what ifing something right now when we have no idea what the outcome's going to be? Uh, a, a good example is, it, the whole thing or, or the notion of you've got an e-commerce site and somebody wants to put, um, I can't think of what they're called right now, but like runners down the, the side, right? Well, what if this happens? What do you mean, what if this happens? How are you going to know, right? The the thing that you do is you put it up there and try it. A, B, tester or something, right? Like don't waste too much time on what ifing things. Just make them happen, right? Because the cart before the, before the horse is, well, if this happens, we're going to have to do this. Well, you don't know what's going to happen yet. Don't don't waste your time guessing. Get some real get some real statistics and metrics and then and then move from there. So it sounds like the solution then would be rather simple. Once you recognize that you are uh, that you have put the cart before the horse, just walk away from whatever it is, right? <laughs> whatever that conversation is, you don't need to be having it. So just right. walk away from it. Yep. Start iterating towards what you can do immediately. Pretty much. Although I've seen it bite things like the other way, like uh, the problem in reverse where like, say you're on an e-commerce site and you start, okay, I want to uh, add a new feature. I want to show some new data. So let me first start by going to the page, uh, adding that new data. I'm just going to grab it out of the database. And now it's time to start talking about rolling it out. And you're like, Oh, wait a second. I, uh, this is a huge e-commerce site. I can't be querying the database every page load. What I need to do is go and like plumb this through some sort of like, 
you know, search engine and I need to get this hooked up to the cache. And it's like, wait, so all that work I did in order to kind of prototype this or, um, you know, in order to get my results quickly is all completely throwaway to how it really needs to be done for production. But that's... But you had to learn. Yeah, you had to learn. That's not putting the cart before <laughs> the horse. You had an actionable thing at that point, right? The, that was literally just a learning experience saying, oh, we did this, that, you know, we have more traffic than what we thought. It's a bigger load on the database than what we anticipated, whatever. You know, that's that's real world type stuff. But I don't think that's... That's not necessarily sitting around talking about something that, that wasn't ever going to get done, you know? Yeah. All right. All right, so let's move on to the next one, which has a fantastic name. It sounds so upbeat and friendly. The Death March. So <laughs> this is a project where everyone on it, all the staff involved, are expecting this to fail. and Or you're compelled to continue, often with a lot of overwork and management is in denial of the problem. Right? So we've probably all been in in this situation anyone who has been in you know their career for you know any length of reasonable time unless you just started a month ago you've been in this situation right um so because the project is destined to fail that's you know, hence the name the death march right um these are projects that are often uh the result of unrealistic or over overly optimistic expectations uh, in regards to the scaling, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, the, the scheduling of the project or the scope of the project or both, right? And this is often coupled with a lack of documentation or a lack of expertise or training in the given area that you're trying to uh, work in, which kind of goes back to, you know, often... Uh, the overly optimistic scheduling because there, you know, management might be assuming a certain skill level that the expertise just isn't there for. Overall, this ends up hurting the morale of the team because everyone can sense this that you know this uh, impeding failure. Everyone's nervous. Everyone's stressed about it. And what you know, a side effect of this is that often. <laughs> your management is going to believe that this problem can be corrected by one of two ways. And this is where the morale is really going to get hurt. If everyone just works more hours, we can solve this problem faster. And if that won't solve the problem, then we can just add more people to the problem to get the project done sooner or at least on time. Yeah, and 10% more hours is not 10% more productivity, and 20% more hours is not 10% more productivity. No, that's true. I, and you know what? Like, this this I've seen, and it almost always is a huge disconnect from management understanding the requirements, right? It's almost always that like this isn't somebody being overly optimistic on an engineering side. Typically, this is almost always, hey, we're going to wholesale replace this system and it'll take three months. Like, how did you come up with those numbers? And, and have you talked to anybody? Have you found out what this actually entails? How does it integrate with everything else? It, it don't like in my experience, it's almost always been the manager has this idea of what he wants, but he's not tied in enough to know 
what that actually means. It, it doesn't even have to be that. It, sometimes it could just be like the complication of the system you're, you're working in too. Like I, as you were talking, I was reminded of a, of a particular story that involved you where, you know, there was a label that needed to be changed. <laughs> Three days later, the label was changed. Man. <laughs> but, you know, no fault of your own. It was just a very complex system. <laughs> So I got to share this. I don't know if I ever have or not. So um, when I met Joe, as a matter of fact, um, I had come to work for the company he was at. And and the very first ticket I was given was literally change the label on the page. And I was like... I mean, how hard could that be? Yeah. Like, why, why are they even paying me for this? Right? Like, man, I'll never forget walking back over to Joe like two days later, maybe three days later... And a wiki page, two pages long, I was like, look, dude, like, I apologize. It took me three days to do this thing. And, but I wrote up some instructions on how anybody ever needs to do this again to change a label on a page. He's like, no, nah, man, everything's like this. And I was like, what? Yeah. What do you mean Sounds everything's like, what? <laughs> I, yeah. I don't remember how it was. I know there were XML files and there was they were like stored in the database, but there was also some weird caching. And so it was like there was this whole weird cycle going on. It was terrible. And if you remember right, it, they had little sections and stuff. And then there were like queries that would query like 1500 records out and it would loop over those and then query uh, up 1500 times yep. to the database. And I remember going through all this and you couldn't navigate any of the files because unlike regular OO programming where literally you'd have inheritance, right? This wasn't this. They would have one file that would reference version three of the file that would reference version oh, two yeah. of the file that would reference. And you were like, oh my God. Like, yep. how I, I couldn't even figure out how to navigate the project, right? <laughs> and and yeah. I just walked in like a beat dog. I was like, I yeah. And I, someone would reference like the V5 version of this function, someone version the V6. And like, presumably it was intentional. I don't know. Yeah, man. It, so it's funny that that's a perfect example of something so incredibly complex that. Well, no, the opposite. The management doesn't have an understanding of of what it takes to get something done. No fault of their own. I'm not blaming them. Mm -hmm. They it's not their responsibility to know some of those inner workings. But so they might set overly optimistic expectations of of what they of the schedule that they want something done, and not realize the complication behind the scenes. Now, you know, some of that complication that could honestly, as the you know. I'm going to say the engineers, but you could call it the developers. <laughs> they might, you know, some of that complication might be our own fault at times. Yeah, right? definitely. Uh, yeah. So we're not like perfectly, you know, um, we're not totally in the clear here, but. But what do you do if you get put on one of these death march projects? Like what, what can you do as, as a person who's on this? The only well, thing you can do is communicate. All you can ever do in this situation, in my opinion, is to, to, reinforce to all of the management involved where, you know, the project management and managers, you know, what you think can be done and what can't be done, what is reasonable and what's not reasonable. And just be consistent in that message to them and let them make their own mind. Well, I will tell you every death march I've been on, and I've been on a couple of like legitimate death marches where I knew well ahead of time that it was going to fail. Like there was very little chance for like basically zero chance for for uh, for success, and uh, you know basically raise the flag every chance you get, raise it to everyone that you can, 
and, and keep digging. But what I found is that it's not necessarily your manager that's the problem or their manager or even the CEO or the board. It's the, somewhere along the line, there's some sort of disconnect where there's either a deadline or a, a something that isn't easily changed or isn't easy to communicate with that breaks that chain there. And so what it might be is that when that manager was hired or that CEO was hired, you know, whoever the board or somebody said, you will have this done by this date or we're going to find somebody who can. And so that was kind of a part of the deal there, right? So they didn't feel like they had a choice or they were handed some some documents that said, this is what's going to be done by this date. And it may be impossible and there may not be a great way. You know, it's not like someone doesn't understand or someone doesn't know. It's just that there was a disconnect between who set the deadline and who's actually responsible for completing it. But you know, what sucks about this whole thing though, is regardless of how realistic, especially certain type of people, all three of us for sure, even though you know it's unrealistic, you're still going to kill yourself trying to get it done. And that's the part that kills the morale, right? That's, that's really the part right there is certain people have it ingrained in them that they never want to fail, right? Like they don't want to let people down. They don't want to miss something like it's on my shoulders. I'm going to do it. And that's where morale can really take a hit because not only are you trying to get it done, but you're under crazy pressure. You're going to be pulled into meetings and whatever to where they're like, why isn't this done? What can we do to get it going faster? And you're going to say, you can't, right? And then you're going to go back and work until midnight and then come in the next morning and do the same thing. And that's what really stinks. And it really it's demoralizing and it's terrible. It's terrible for everything. Well, because there's a part of you that wants to be the hero. Yeah, there say, is. Hey, this can't be done. But then if you pull it off, you're like, oh my god, I, I did this. This yeah. is a miracle. But then you're only setting yourself up for future pain because then you're going to be expected to pull that miracle off time and time again. And it may have been just luck the first time that you got it done. And that's very or real. A lot of Red Bull. That's very real. What he just said. You absolutely, whether you're new at development or you're seasoned or whatever, you need to be aware that going too far above and beyond, not not in what you want to achieve, but time constraints and that kind of stuff, you're setting the ground to let people know that you're willing to do that. And a lot of times, if you are that guy, they will take advantage of it time mm-hmm. and time again. It's, it's like the 80-20 rule, right? Like... Typically, a boss will find out these 20% of my guys kick tail all the time. They're going to load those 20% up, right? And then those 80% of people that aren't getting as much done are going to float and they're going to be working their 40-hour work weeks while you're, while you're spending 60, 70 hours. So just be aware and be, be you know conscious of the fact that that's very real. Right. When you do that and you time and time again over deliver on what was a ridiculous schedule, it's almost expected of you. Hey, that's the guy that does that. Right. And, and when you snap, they're going to be like, whoa, 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 why'd you snap? Right. Like, this is what you do. So it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. So I think I've been on three like textbook death marches and every single time, like, probably at least half the people end up quitting over the time period. It does end up being exceptionally late, like beyond all, you know, like beyond (laughs) like the hard deadline that was, you know, you just can't miss it. And then the one after that, that you just can't miss. And the one after that, like it, you know, way past the many deadlines. 
and also it's a huge flop and everyone's really upset and there's all sorts of bad fallout. And I've also noticed um, in at least uh, at least one of those situations, I did end up going to the very top of my chain, like the, the, the general manager. So I let out my concerns. Like, I know this is kind of breaking ranks, whatever, but, you know, this is like this is, you know, I don't know if you're not hearing this or what, but here's the problem. And I basically got told to uh, get, get back to work. And I feel like that's, you know, common because for whatever reason, like the circumstances that line up to create that death march are constructed in such a way that like it's kind of it, it's a death trap, you know, and there isn't like somebody being bullheaded. There's like circumstances that have just kind of, you know, the stars have aligned on and it's really hard to get out of. Yep. It's an unfortunate situation. Yep. So quit is basically his answer. <laughs> you know, that you say that and somewhat jesting, but honestly, a lot of times that sort of is what the end result is, right? Well, I mean, yeah, let's, I mean, let's put this into a different perspective. Let's let, let's reword this situation. You have you're working in an environment where they're not listening. If you're saying, "Hey, this can't be done in this period of time," and then they're expecting you to work ridiculous hours in order to get it done, anyways, even though it's not going to happen, and that none of that sounds like a fun environment, right? So, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a high attrition rate in situations like that. Yep. Well, you kind of got it because, like, even even if you do stick around, you do put in the time. When it does launch, launch, it's going to be a crap fest, and so it's like, what are you sticking around for? Yep. Because this is going to be rushed, right? A death march will be rushed. Corners will yeah. be cut, and there will be problems. And the chances are that you're in the death rush because the are the uh, the death march because the company is probably going to fail. Your division is going to fail if you don't make it. And so there's some sort of like existential setup here where you're against the wall and you're, if you don't make it, you're going to die and you know, you're not going to make it. So <laughs> quitting is, I think a valid option for no, death marches. It's typically the ideal one. So unfortunately, yeah. all right, what we got next? Well, that's some weird advice that we have never given before. <laughs> we haven't really, <laughs> I don't think so. No, but it's legitimate. Yeah. You know, know, know what you're up against always. Well, the next one is the, basically the 80-20 rule that uh, Alan just referenced. Uh, here in Wikipedia, they call it the 90-90 rule, which is 90% uh, of the effort. Uh, or, well, I forget how they say it, but basically 90% uh, of the time it takes to do a task. Uh, wait, help me out here. No, no, you're, you're good. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to hear this. There's a resolution somewhere. <laughs> the last 10% of a task takes 90% of the time. All right, how about if I just read this from Wikipedia? Please do. Save me. The first 90% of the code accounts for the first 90% of the development time. The remaining 10% of the code accounts for the other 90% of the development time. That's yeah, 180%. And, uh, I'm pretty this, sure um, that somebody's math is wrong there. But I think they meant it on purpose, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's a bunch of different names for this. The 80-20 rule is kind of another similar concept. Um, another favorite is the Hofstadler's Law, which is the one where it um, it always takes longer than you expect, even when you take into account Hofstadler's Law. Right? So it's kind of a recursive definition. And I'm sure any, like anyone who's ever done an estimate has run into this. We're like, I think it'll take me 10 minutes. So I'll say an hour and, and then I'll double that. So I'll say two hours. And somehow it takes four anyway, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know how that happens. Every but one of my It tickets. happens all the time. 
Uh, and um, so you know like any example bunch of examples like every blizzard game ever you know it's like release late 2017 and sometimes like 2020 comes around and you're like wait a second wasn't that game supposed to come out <laughs> yeah it, it's very common software projects um you know it's complex things are hard um we've got death marches we've got uh, all these other project management anti-patterns going on so i mean it um, really did happen it didn't take that long for duke nukem to come out <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Half-Life 3. But, uh, yeah, uh, I, I thought um, some kind of thing, interesting things to point out were just kind of like sometimes there's different definitions of done. Like a programmer will often think of thing a ticket being done as soon as they get that commit in. But a lot of times there's documentation, meetings, uh, plans for how to roll things out or incorporate the data and things that just aren't easy to account for. And so you might think like, oh, I only have a little bit more code and I have to talk to these guys about how to finish up what I'm doing and then I'm done. But then it's that that kind of that question mark that you had there ends up being a lot bigger than you thought because it requires uh, communication and other people and all sorts of stuff. And so putting a bow on something and actually calling it done and shipping is much different than, you know, get push origin code complete yeah and so how do you know you when you're falling into the strap push where <laughs> origin master it's not it didn't sound like he said origin the first time but uh, origin origin yeah it was some like this is the next pronunciation question that's going to be in the slack conversation <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Get pushed oh, where? I'm sorry. To where? Origin. Uh, so, how do you know when this is uh, when you're falling into this trap? And I just put down here like, have you made an es- any estimates at all? If so, you're very likely in danger of this problem. <laughs> <laughs> very likely, or it's already too late. You've already fallen into it. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I was kind of curious uh, how to, how you prevent it. And uh, actually, Stack Overflow had some really nice suggestions. Um, and it basically broke down into um, or boiled down to doing things in small chunks. And so kind of like the agile methodology is all kind of built around preventing this sort of thing, right? We do things in small chunks. We estimate them in small chunks. It makes it easier to do things more accurately. And when we do have a big blowout, um, you know, usually it's a little bit more contained. So just by doing things... Uh, in smaller, more isolated uh, sections, we kind of isol- uh, insulate ourselves from larger problems. Um, I also, um, I added, I had one thing I wanted to add to the Stack Overflow answers, which is just try not to estimate if you don't have to, because it's it's just setting yourself up to lose. The house always wins, guys. Okay, let's let's take the devil's advocate approach to this, right? Because we would all love to just be able to program in a vacuum, right? Like that would be amazing, straight up. Hey, here, go do this thing. All right, I'm going to make this the most perfect code on the planet. But how do you let upper management know when something's going to be done in a reasonable amount of time? Like, that's that's always the thing, right? Like, there's always going to be some downward pressure to say, hey, we need to get X, Y, and Z done, right? And then there's always going to be the people who are doing it. They're saying, well, I don't know if we can get it done in that amount of time. How do you... How do you communicate that properly if there's not estimates? Just out of curiosity. I mean, who doesn't have estimates? I feel like there's not a lot of places where you can get away with that sort of thing. Uh, but I do think communicating early, as early as possible, even if it's way too late, you should still do it as early as possible. Because it's one thing to say, you know what, this is coming a little hot or this is taking longer than I thought. 
you know, I said Friday, but it's going to be longer. I don't know. That's so much easier to say on a Monday than it is to say, you know, for your managers from perspective for everything to be fine Thursday night and Friday afternoon, you're telling me you've got days left. Like what the heck? Right. Uh, and, and that's definitely something that I've, I've gotten in trouble before. I, I try to be better about it now, but it still happens. It kind of creeps up on me where like, I really do think like something's almost done. I just gotta, I just gotta, I just gotta wait. It's Friday. <laughs> Ain't happening. Yeah, it, this one's a frustrating one for me because I, I generally speaking, don't like dealing with estimates. Like, it, they drive me crazy because it, it does, in, in my mind, two things. One, it sort of boxes you in, which stinks, right? Because if if there's anything that's going to make you cut a corner, it's going to be some sort of artificial timeline, and that drives me crazy. And the other thing is, it's so hard to really estimate something. And, and sometimes I feel like if you're truly going to do it right, that means you're going to spend as much time trying to, you know, almost micromanage what you're doing in order to get it to that point. And then I feel like it's almost a waste of time, right? Like, I, I don't know. I it, It's such a hard thing. I wish there was some sort of way to automate that kind of thing, right? Like when you're working on software, if you know that you're going to be in certain things, like there was some way to measure that. And then that way, if another thing comes up that touches that, it could look back at all the historical stuff and give you that estimate for you. Instead of you saying, hey, I think this is what it's going to be. Because I hate them. I absolutely hate estimates. Here's the the problem that I have with estimates is that in many places where I've been at, this is the way it's treated, Okay. Let's say you have a, a glass jar, right? And you have in front of you a bunch of, you know, earthy materials to put in that jar, right? <clears throat> so you're like, well, okay. Um, let's say that these rocks represent tickets that are estimated at a week long. Well, okay. How many rocks can I fit in this jar? Okay. That's, that's good. So I can get that amount of rocks done. And now, okay, well, there's still some space in here if I go to some of these smaller uh, pebbles, right? So let me put how many, you know, maybe each pebble only represents like a, a three-day long task. Okay, let me put these pebbles in here. And now um, there's still some more room in here. If I were to fill the remaining volume, remaining area with sand, maybe those represent one-day tickets. So I'm going to fill fill the remaining up to sand. And that's the way management treats yeah. estimations is that they just think like, okay, if whatever our sprint cycle is, if it's a two week long sprint, for example, then we can load up each developer, uh, based off of whatever these ticket estimates were, we can fill their jar with, uh, you know, that amount. And it sounds in theory like that should work, but the estimates aren't rocks, right? Like right. that rock is a hard, non-changing thing, right? Unless you smash it with a hammer. But we're going to ignore that. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, but the point is, is that the estimates are fluid. They're unknown. Like they're total guesses. We, If we knew, then we wouldn't call it an estimate. It would be, right? this is how long it will take. This is, the, this is it, right? Yeah. This is the actuality. But it is an estimate and it's just a guess. So we can't treat it as, hey, let's just fill up these jars. I, I've never been in an environment, would, but would totally love to be in an environment where instead of the tickets being estimated on how long you think it's going to take to produce something, instead, if it was flipped on its head and the management uh, or the product team or whoever 
were to, to assign dollar amounts to it, and then the teams just go after, like, what are the high-dollar tickets? With the ROI, right? Yeah. Like, we're which talking ones, about return on investment Which there. ones, well, how are, yeah, which ones are going to produce the more, the, the, the most ROI to the company? That's the ticket I want to go after, because if I succeed in getting that ticket done, that's the one that's going to make me look good to the other people, right? I, I'll take it a step further, because I like that approach. I think, though, that it needs to be a combination of things. I think you still need to have some sort of guesstimate on there. Let's call it an educated guess on there. But then, then you take your ROI and you and you attach it to the estimates and you say, okay, this one's we guess will take about two weeks and the ROI is high. This other one's going to take six months. It might have a high ROI, but the amount of time to get to that ROI may not be as valuable. So I think you marry the two. But I think what you said about the rocks and the glass is a perfect, perfect analogy because Really what it boils down to is, unless you're working in a true, let's let's just say agile right now, unless you're working in a true agile thing where sprints don't readjust in size, right? Like nobody's allowed to add something to a sprint, which hopefully all three of us can agree that that's not necessarily the best way to do business, right? Because there are some things that are more important than whatever you've currently got. The problem is though, is typically what happens is, your sprint's going to get interrupted with additional work and additional things that you need to happen. But the expectation of what was originally thrown in there never changes. And that's where a lot of the problem comes in, right? But I don't think we can get rid of estimates, I guess is where I'm going. But on the flip side, I think that marrying it to something like, hey, what is my return on this? And then looking at it and saying, okay, well, I can get great returns on this shorter term one you know, versus this one that's going to take, you know, six months and 20, 20 men working on it, whatever, or, or women. Um, but, you know, I, I guess that's where I'm going is. I, well, there's hmm. another approach to this too, that um, where, you know, that a friend has mentioned before, where it's like, what if the, uh, the, the management team were to assign, like, I'm willing to have someone work three days on this thing. If they can get it done in three days, cool. But if they can't, right? And so that's where like maybe if you knew like the ROI with what they're willing to spend on it time-wise, then you could kind of have an idea about like, you know, man, that's a high dollar ROI. Do I think I could pull that off? Right. And then and then maybe have the conversation about like, hey, let's maybe dig into this. Maybe we can break this up into something smaller and like iterate towards it. Yep. But um, you know, because maybe, maybe the amount of time that you want to spend on it isn't realistic, but uh, yeah, I, I hate just being given a task, like some random thing and then saying like, Hey, how long do you think it would take to do that? It, Let me write it and I'll tell you how long it took me. Because inevitably what's going to happen is if you put too much and they're going to be like, why is it so much? And if you put too little, they're going to be like, oh, oh, that's yeah. another thing, man. right. And so, yeah, yep. I mean, I don't want to go too far down this hole because honestly estimates could take up a whole show, right? <laughs> like we could really, I remember like being in school and like they would say to add a certain percentage, you know, onto your estimates to, to give yourself this kind of, uh, you know, leeway just in case if something went wrong. And then sure enough, you know, you're like, I know the math. I know how to do these estimates. All I got to do is like take what I really think I could do it in, add this extra buffer to it. Boom. There's my estimate. And then like you said, Hey, why did you say it would take five days to do that? Well, do you want the real answer? <laughs> Because I really don't think it'll take five days, but I was trying to give myself a buffer just in case. Oh, well, in that case, let's go with the real days. Right. And then you're held and to then, it, right? And then you're like, oh, yeah. crap. 
then, then yeah, that's, there's this pressure to give these low ball estimates, or else you look like a dunce, right? Mm-hmm. And like we know, we've all been there. I'm sure we're like looking around tickets or something, and you just happen to see one in somebody else's queue, and they've got three days on it, and you think it's an hour. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, well, if that's three days, I'm going to go put five days on some of mine because <laughs> apparently that's what we're doing. But, you know, I mean, going back to like team morale and uh, you know, we've talked about the imposter syndrome before. Right. And I think when it comes to estimating efforts, the imposter syndrome. Oh, I mean, it weighs in heavy oh, yeah. because if you're like me, then you you look at that ticket. and You're like, oh, man, it. I don't know, a lifetime? Like, huh. I mean, it's a label. So it's more like a sentence I've to you. i XML a- files I got to go and edit, find which versions they're using. It's, I don't know, a month? What's reasonable like, here? Like, you never... I think this is the day, because no one's going to believe me. Right. Because that imposter syndrome is very real. So it could totally yep. mess with your head and throw off your estimations. And then you, you got to know that that's probably why your management is coming back to you. Like, why did you say it would be so high? Right. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it really stinks. Like, look, there's no right answer. There, there really isn't. There's, there's been articles and books written on how to estimate things and they're all wrong. Like straight yeah. up, there, there's nothing right out there because yeah. you can't know. Cause chapter one should just be, just don't do it. Right. No, yeah. try try and do good work. Well, and here's the bad side too. If you estimate too low and you get any of those right, then you're going to start getting all of the work from now. You're going to get hammered with stuff, yeah, and you're going, yeah, you're going to be overburdened. It's it's not a pretty situation. House always wins. Yep. All right, so mine. I I feel like you guys gave this one to me on purpose. I don't know if this was out of order or what. Like, uh, I'm not sure. I'm a little hurt, maybe. Not really. I don't know. Is this one about scaling? Something like that. Kind of like that. So, uh, (laughs) so this one is over engineering, spending resources, making a project more robust and complex than it is needed. Now. I am going to preface this first off in my very high voice that, that I don't do this at work. Like I on on real things, I am very much middle of the road versus and then we'll get into this. But I usually am seriously between I want elegant, but I want functional and I want, you know, reasonable amount of time. So that's real life. Side projects, I am totally this guy. Like Oh my God, like I need this thing to be able to scale across Azure, AWS, Rackspace, and every other platform on the planet, right? Like, and I need to write an interface that'll make it easy to do this. Like that's, that's how my brain works. Um, because that's the perfect world, right? Like that does, it doesn't really exist. So I'm going to play however I want. And it's my, it's my backyard. All right. So, <laughs> um, well, yeah, cl- because clearly this new social platform that I'm working on is going to take off. It's going to be amazing. Yes. Everybody's going to want to join Faceblocks, so I need it to scale to a con- you know a billion concurrent users. Yes, across every cloud platform on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, um, some of the points that they had here were designing a product to be more robust or complicated than it is necessary for its application. Okay, so that might that might fit my side projects. Um, this is interesting and this is useful to know. Overengineering can be desirable when safety or performance on a particular criterion is critical. So think about something if you're writing software for the medical industry, right? It might be important that that thing works. 
right? Like, well, I mean, we could take it even outside of the concept of uh, software and just say, like, you know, if you're building a plane, yeah, totally. Right, this bolt may only need to hold, you know, a hundred foot pounds of pressure on it, but you know, it if you had be. one that held two hundred, it's not that's okay, hurt. right? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, th- there are situations where it matters, right? If if you're running software for the banking industry, you better make sure that stuff's secure, right? So there's probably no such thing as over-engineering and getting security right in that case, right? Spend spend enough time on it to make sure that the problem is there. Did I hear you right that if you're making stuff in the baking Banking. Indus- Bank- banking. Banking. Oh, I thought you said baking. And yes. I'm like, wait, why if I'm... No, I think if you're in the baking industry... <laughs> And you're worried about security. You are over-engineering because Betty Crocker doesn't care. You don't want nobody stealing your pies. I can promise oh, you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Chef Boyardee. Yeah. So it, that can be desirable. Um, wasteful. It is typically wasteful in terms of value engineering, right? Like if you're over, over-engineering something, you're wasting money. You're wasting time. You're wasting a lot of things. Uh, it's typically a contradiction to the KISS principle, the keep it simple, stupid. And... The less is more concept, right? Just get it done. Get it done in a way that makes sense. That's not too complicated. Um, a lot of times, like so, I don't know that we've wrapped up those domain-driven design. Um, we'll probably revisit it because there, there's still some more stuff there. But we needed to break because our brains were melting. Um, <laughs> but like we talked about it there. If you are doing an application that's no more than CRUD, right? You have a form and it's getting thrown into a database table and you want to populate a grid on a page with that same information. There's no business rules. Domain-driven design is over-engineering, right? Make a CRUD application with a very simple setup. That's that's a way to keep it simple. Um, you can make your user interfaces too complex. They had they had an interesting notion on the Wikipedia article where you know you create a text editor, but now you've got all these various different formats you can save it in. Somebody just wants a text editor. They don't want thirty different decisions when they go to save the file, right? Like, it, <laughs> I just want to save this text. Um, and then the last thing that they had there was, I think, basically kind of what we we're getting at is you know making making things that are way more powerful than what the need is. You know, if who knows if your social platform is going to get big. Look, Facebook didn't build Facebook the way that it exists today. The first the first iteration of that thing, I believe, was MySQL and PHP, right? So it didn't exist in the form that it is today when it first started off. Nor did LinkedIn, nor did Instagram, nor did any place else. Instagram, when they started off, they had no clue they were going to blow up. And they actually, by the way, I've mentioned it before on the podcast, they have an engineering blog where they talked about, man, we started facing some scaling issues. And so what we did is we started sharding things off. So it's an iterative iterative approach. Don't start off trying to do this stuff like I do all my spare projects. So that's that, that was mine. So let's ask the question of how do you recognize that you're over engineering something? Mm. Joe? I was thinking uh, it's kind of a, like what we talked about the cart before the horse. It's like if you're afraid of the next demo or you're afraid of setting a milestone or if you write down the list of things that are uh, important for your next demo or milestone and you're not really working on it, then you may be over engineering. Yeah, I would, I, I might even say that if there are certain features, like 
So side projects aside, because honestly, like maybe your goal is to learn how to scale something, right? So that's, that's different than you've got, you're at work and they say, we need feature ABC, right? And all of a sudden, instead of working on feature ABC, you're like, no, man, I need to turn these things into microservices before we do this. You're not working towards that feature, right? So maybe just taking a step back and looking at what you're doing and are you, are you moving towards that goal or are you just working on something that's tertiary that doesn't really matter that much? Right. Or, or it's not solving a problem that exists yet. I think that might be the key right there. If there's not a problem you're trying to solve that, that is some sort of pain point, then maybe you've gone this route. You? Well, I, I was kind of thinking of um, there's there's the book that we've referenced before. So this one is almost kind of something near and dear to uh, you know my heart, maybe Joe's heart, um, your heart too, about uh, related to testing. Because from a management point of view, they might want to consider unit tests as like. We don't need that. Why would we need that? Just focus on getting the job done, right? And in we've I think we've talked about the book, The Art of Unit Testing in the past, and there's definitely some conversation in there about um, if you do your testing, the, the effects of doing unit tests before versus after, i.e. a TDD approach, um, and the effects of that it has on the team's ability to uh, develop faster and more accurately, right? And so it's a careful balance in my head from the de developer or engineer, depending on your term of choice, point of view <laughs> of writing those unit tests versus the way management might perceive something like that because, you know, they might think, well, why do we need this now? We don't, we, we're still trying, we're still in initial development. I don't see that as over engineering though. That's just well, where you and I wouldn't. Well, no, because I, I guess my thing is, is that is that's provable to be valuable, right? E even even in a simple case, that's provable because you can say, "Hey, we were able to make sure that this bug didn't go out because there was unit tests in place." But I think where over engineering might come in. Even even with within the unit test is if you're trying to get 100% coverage, right? You know, because I've even heard people say, test test the most important parts of your app, right? The most. Make sure that that has good coverage. And then the other parts that really don't get used or changed that much, and then it may not even be that important to have them there. So I would think that over-engineering in that case might be just, you know, why are you trying to get 100% coverage, right? Does it matter at that point? But I... I I, I would disagree. So yeah, I'm not as mm, diligent about adding unit tests as what like you are for for instance. But I do think the importance of it is off the charts. Like I, it, the more I've programmed, the more complex systems I've used over the years, the more I firmly believe that you should have them in place and you should have some sort of framework in place to ensure them that when they're going to build servers and all that kind of stuff, they're, they're valid. So I don't, I don't see that as over engineering. I see that as a critical part of having a, a sound piece of software. Yeah. 
we're all engineers here. I, I even think management. I think so. I, that's why I, I again because we're talking about like the hmm. you know, from a project management right? point of view, right? They might look at uh, it's a waste of time to spend time writing those. You know, I'm just trying to think of like a what would be what might be a real world example that we face. Uh, you know, regularly, right? So, I mean, once you convince your, once you can, you know, uh, show that benefit to your management team, it's like a one-time kind of lesson, right? Like they get it and then it's done. But I think that's the key, right? Over-engineering, the true sense of over-engineering is there isn't that value to it, right? Over-engineering is literally, I did it for the sake of, I wanted it to be able to do this, but it didn't add any real value at that point in time. I guess that's where I'm going. Like unit tests have a clear value, right? Especially when done right and, and, and done the proper amount. Whereas it's always going too far. The, the over-engineering is you've got something that works, it works well, but you wanted to take it to that nth level to where it was infinitely extensible or something, right? Like who knows, who knows what it is that I guess that's my gut feel on it. Mm-hmm. Just imagine uh, being at a company and they get bought by uh, somebody and the, the new company comes in or the new manager comes in and says, you know what? Uh, we're rewriting everything on spring. We're going to do a plug-in architecture. Uh, and we were like, wait a second, there'd only be one plug-in, you know, uh, <laughs> but that's what the thing does happen. <clears throat> yeah. Over-engineering. So, hey, who's doing the bag this time? Uh, it's been a while before I did it. Joe, since, or since lead, I did it, it. lead us with a bag. All right. I'm going to beg for reviews because they're really important to us. And I know it's annoying when we do this and so many of you have done it and we really appreciate it but it really means a lot to us. If you go to www.codingblocks.net slash review, we'll have a bunch of links to make it as easy as possible. If you don't use iTunes, that's fine. Um, Stitcher uh, is great. Um, Podcatcher, there's a couple. We've got a bunch of links on that uh, slash review link there. And if you just take the time, drop some stars in there, all the stars, and then <laughs> say something, we greatly appreciate that. And then if you have something nasty to say, just email us and uh, we'll eventually read it and be sad about it for a while. Yes, we truly will. Uh, uh, there's a, There should be an anti-pattern for asking for five-star reviews and then nasty feedback in email. We, we didn't ask for five-star reviews. We just want an honest review. That yeah, I just want be, five star. I yes. mean, wait, I, I want. <laughs> we prefer. I would love for you guys to leave a review. <laughs> <laughs> Please leave us a review and tell us how happy we make you. Um, yeah. All right. Well, with that, we uh, lead into my favorite part of the show. Survey says. All right. So last episode we asked iPhone eight. It's the iPhone we've always wanted, or it's evolutionary, not revolutionary, or lastly, it's time to switch to Android. All right, let's see. I guess since Joe just did the bag, I'll let you go first, Alan. Okay, so I know you iPhone users out there. I know your types. (laughs) This is evolutionary, not revolutionary. All right. All right. And I'm going to go with 40%. 40%. I'm going with 40. Okay. Well, I think a, 
a higher proportion of developers use Android already uh, just because of the, the ecosystem. So I think that 40% are going to say time to switch anyway. So I'm going to go ahead and bump this up to 62% for time to switch. <laughs> 62. <laughs> pretty big. Point three. He's now we the, said how many were going to respond to the survey that way. We all know like half the people are going to go out and buy it anyway. Yeah, that's true. That's a very good point. Sixty-two percent are going to threaten not to. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Just like I, me. I don't that's believe that, man. Well, until we see the price, right? We, yeah. We don't yet yeah. know what the price tag is really going to be on it. Twelve hundred dollar base price. I've seen. There've been rumors that. Yeah. It, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Insane. Sad. So when are you getting yours? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> pre-order. I, I was already in line. Yeah, he's already got it. it. Actually, he's not sitting. We've got a sit-in right now. He's he's yeah. sitting at Best Buy. I'm gonna pre-order it uh, September 12th. Yes. Um. All right. So, uh, you said 40 percent evolutionary, not revolutionary, Alan and Joe. You said 62 <laughs> percent. I'm gonna ignore the fraction. Uh, for time to switch. And Joe wins it. Really? Oh, my gosh. No, but that's got to be because most everybody's not an iPhone user that answered that. He wins doubly. Oh, Because not only was it the most popular answer, he also didn't go over. That's ridiculous. How high was it? 65% time to switch to Android. Hey, smart people out there. I'm just saying. But, you know, the problem that I have with that sentiment is I want to agree with you, except... Android phones are getting up there in price too, so it's not like, that high, man. I got come two, on a nine with the pixels like nine hundred dollars, right? No, nah, man, I got two Galaxy S eight pluses for. Oh, you got them way well after the fact, though. What if you got the Note eight as it's coming out? No, right I got now? it. I got it like two months after it was out. Like it wasn't a long time. Maybe yeah, two months. It, it, they just ha- they were running good deals on it, and I was like, okay, I'll get them. Mm. Now, now I will say some of the phones are ridiculous. Like the regular price on an S8 Plus is eight hundred and fifty bucks, right? So, but I mean, look, <laughs> these things are getting more expensive than laptops now. Like seriously, the Yoga and the HP Spectre review that I did, the from the sounds of the rumors, if you were to get the fully loaded iPhone eight with the max gigs of RAM or or storage. You're looking at more than what those two-in-one laptops run, like decked out with, you know, 512 gig hard drives and all the SSDs and all that. Like phones are getting ridiculous, Mm -hmm. like straight up insane. Like pretty soon I'm going to go to, I'm going to get me a flip phone. I mean, the new, the new Pixel 2 is coming out, right? The rumors are that thing is going to go up to $870. Up to, but is that right. maxed out with everything? Because this new well, iPhone, yeah, this iPhone, they're talking twelve hundred base, right? Like that's, come on, man, I'll go buy a used car. Well, that's some of the rumors. I've seen rumors where it was a thousand dollars base. So okay, yeah, still, I mean, they, they are getting like, expensive. I've seen somewhere it was like fourteen hundred maxed out, but yeah, I mean, whatever, it doesn't even matter. It's a the lot. fact that we're even close to four digits for a stupid phone. Yep, totally. It's, so, it's yeah, ridiculous. I'll be getting one of those. Exactly. <laughs> 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 uh, oh, but I'm not going to be happy about it. That's right. That's that's what's important here. Uh, <laughs> I will be handing that money over with tears in my eye. Uh, uh, all right. So, 
Today's survey is having multiple monitors is great, but are they uh, a handicap or a hindrance or a must have? Your turn, Joe. Wait, no, 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 no. Oh, we can't answer. This is don't, yeah, right. don't, don't mess with the jury pool. Okay, we're gonna, we're not gonna mess with the jury pool. Hey, I do have a question for you. You said you were gonna bring it up on the show, and we probably should have done it in the news, but it's probably good that we didn't because it was gonna go too long. So we're gonna do it now. You've been moving around your house recently in terms of work because typically I'm looking at you sideways because you have your monitor flipped up sideways with the mm -hmm. camera on it, right? But you've been bouncing around the house and I meant to ask you about it because I know you want to talk about it on the show. Uh, my guess is you got tired of being in the same spot every day, all day. Is that is that what was going on? Uh, no, we will talk about it in episode 67. Oh, come on. Why are we doing that? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Yeah, man. Don't go messing with my survey. Man. All right, then. Whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, what I Alan's know. referring to about the sideways, though, I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but if you have... This is the most annoying thing. It's so frustrating. Like, I can't stand it. But if you have the Apple Thunderbolt monitor, right, and you decide to turn it on end so that you can just see the entire page web page that you're looking at, like everything on it. Right. So portrait mode. <clears throat> yeah. Um, you can't rotate the camera. Yep. There, there's nothing in the software that will allow you to rotate the view of the camera. And it's crazy to me that you can't do that. The yeah. phone can do it. Yeah, just about everything can. Why? Why can't a thousand dollar monitor? Right. right. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. Now we're putting it into that kind of perspective yeah. where it's like a phone that costs as much as the monitor can do it. Why can't the monitor do it? <laughs> right. It yeah. should be able to do it. It's got more space for more goods and stuff. Yeah. For more That's guts. True. Yeah. <clears throat> so, all right. So I guess I'm not gonna find out until next next go around. <laughs> so we'll be recording again tomorrow night. Um, mm. yeah. <laughs> not really. So that leads us into Alan's up and coming favorite portion of the show. It's time for some Google feud. Yeah, this has moved into my favorite portion. All right. I got my keys ready. Wait, Let's no, see. no, you're doing it wrong. You're not supposed to type. Oh, I'm not supposed to type. Okay. Right. How do you forget this every time? <laughs> man, I don't know. It's so exciting. All right. Go it's ahead. 1117, man. I see the 1117 eyes over there. <laughs> I got this. He's like a little this. kid. He's like, I'm going to type. Yeah, man. What do I got to type? I got this. This is purposely why I don't put these things in the notes. Cause I know. <laughs> I wonder. You know your audience, right? Like I know that you two guys would be like, Oh wait, let me go ahead and type this. See what it does. Uh, oh, I know the answer, Michael. All right. So keeping in with our theme tonight of project management, we're going to start with the first one is, Kanban is not agile. Okay, I like that answer. Is awesome. Is awesome. All right, well, um, sorry, but is awesome is not on the board. So is <laughs> not agile is on the board. However, it is the last on the board, but... By Family Feud rules, you would take control of the board. Ding. Yeah. 
Uh, top answer is the Japanese term for autonomation. Am I yeah, not automation? Autonomation. Autonomation. Yes. I said that right. Yeah. You did. Yes. Probably yeah. Not. I'm going to be corrected about it. It's probably a kludge. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Second answer is Kanban is the new bacon. I don't get that, but I'm I, excited about it. I'm about to it open it. Sounds that. good. Kanban is agile. And the number four answer is Kanban is based on a model of. We'll never know. It just ended <laughs> there. So the reason it said is the new bacon, there's actually a site called agilebacon.com and it came up. That's yeah. really interesting. All right. Uh, and by the way, for those who don't know what Kanban is, instead of agile, where you just, you know, stick things in a sprint and you say that you're going to get X amount of work done. Kanban is just order the things, the most important, put them up at the top and just have people work through it. Right. That's the gist of it. I love that approach, but um, yeah, that's what it is. There's a pretty cool looking shirts that say kan- Kanban is the new bacon. Kanban or Kanban? I say Kanban, but it's spelled <laughs> K-A-N-B-A-N for anybody out there. I'm, I'm sure I'll get corrected at some point. <laughs> It'll happen. Kanban. <clears throat> um, all right. Keeping along with the project management theme, Scrum is a waste of time. A waste of time. Show me waste of time. I was close. Joe, this is your (laughs) opportunity to take control of the board. Scrum Um, is. Scrum is long. (laughs) Google surveyed a billion users. And asked, Scrum is long. All right, so your first answer is Scrum is dead. Well, second, Scrum is not agile. You seeing a theme here? Scrum is bad. Scrum is built on transparency inspection. And lastly, Scrum is agile. So both of these have contradicting answers. Yeah, man. Uh, yeah, whatever. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, some interesting articles. Uh, All right. So the last one. Why do project managers? Your turn, Joe. Why why do project managers? Why do project managers? Why do program managers? Project. Project managers. Why do I feel like he's typing this? Why do I, I don't know what they do? <laughs> why do project they're managers just, they're just use mean Scrum. to be in tickets? I don't really no, have any Agile. questions about it. Why do they use Agile? That's this one. Why do project managers use Agile? I want to say, like, why do they reassign my dang tickets? Why? Show me. Why do project managers reassign my dang tickets? Errr. That was also an for the agile one, yeah, too. Yeah, I wasn't Number one answer. Why do project managers need to understand strategy? Um, next is why do project managers fail? Why do project managers manage project scope? Why do project managers use Gantt charts, and lastly, 
why do project managers fail to plan? Interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of any of those. Yeah. I don't think like a project manager, apparently. Apparently not. <laughs> All right. I, I do enjoy that show part. <laughs> I like that it's now evolved into its own show. It, it, yes, part. Does that mean I get to be the host of a game show? You can. <laughs> ah, life came true. Life lesson came true or <laughs> but, lifelong goal came true. But know that you're going to be creepy. <clears throat> like every game show host out there is somewhat creepy. Like they're just, that's part of it. What was the original guy's name from Family Feud? Richard Dawson? Oh, he was, was creepy. Like, yeah, yeah, he was known for, for being very creepy. Yes. All right. Well, speaking of creepy, let's talk about scope creep. Yes, sir. See what we did there? We did. All right. So what is scope creep? This is when you are adding new features to the project after the original requirements have been drafted and accepted at any point after the project begins. So this is also known as require, requirement creep, function creep, and my favorite, the kitchen sink syndrome. <laughs> and although this is considered similar, but considered distinct from feature creep. Okay. So this occurs when the project isn't well-defined, it's not well-documented, and or it's not well-controlled. And it can be a result of uh, poor change control. So, you know, your customer or users want new features and the project management team doesn't, uh, you know, properly account for those. And instead they just, oh yeah, we'll do it in this one. Um, could be a lack of defining a project's success metric. So what, what are the objectives of this project? Uh, it could be partly due to weak project manager or executive sponsor, which is kind of like the example I just gave where instead of um, stating, okay, that's great. You know that you want this new feature. We will be sure to include that in release X, Y, Z down the road. And instead they just include it in with the, the uh, current project already underway. And it could also be part of poor communication, which has been somewhat of a common theme in some of these topics that we've talked about tonight. Um, it could also be a lack of versatility within the product that um, might make someone, you know, project manager uh, want to just include it into the current to try to expand the current scope of the project um, because of the amount of effort that it would take. It might be easier for the, from the project manager's point of view to just say like, Hey, let's just include it. Um, large mega projects will often fall victim to scope creep and, um, similar to the one that you covered earlier, Alan, I can't remember which one it was. Uh, I think it was over engineering scope creep, which is, uh, can add additional cost to the overall final project. I definitely think that the bigger the project is, the more likely scope creep is to be a really big problem. I think creep happens all the time. And I don't even really think of creep as being such a bad thing because a lot of times the stuff that creeps up is all good and important stuff. It's just that you hadn't really thought of it ahead of time. And that's kind of the problem because you end up kind of reworking and rehabbing to talk and you, you know, you're changing all these things that you've estimated. And so you're kind of dooming yourself. 
Um, but if you can kind of keep things smaller, which has also been a recurring theme tonight, then I think that you can kind of protect yourself a little bit from this. You know, two things. I completely agree with what you just said about the scope creep isn't necessarily bad because a lot of times it does point out things that just weren't thought about that, that couldn't have been thought about because you weren't walking down that path. Right. And, and I think that's important to keep in mind. Like, don't be that person that's always banging the drum. This is scope creep. We're not doing it right. Like that's, that's not necessarily the, the right way to be, but there is, there is a line that you have to draw, right? Like this, this doesn't meet the goal that we're trying to do, or this doesn't meet whatever success metric, right? Like it's not trying to achieve that. Um, but the other thing is, is this not the very first, like, real terminology that you got when you came into the workplace, right? Like you'd hear it <laughs> daily. Oh, this scope creep like that. I, well, I remember I, hearing this one in school, right? Yeah. It, it's just, this is one of those things. That it's really, you don't even need to explain that much because everybody sort of feels it as soon as they start doing any kind of real work. I mean, it's in, it was part of this, uh, this overall conversation, but it does. Some of these feel very, like I mentioned before, against the whole concept of the MVP, yeah, right? And this one kind of feels like that as well, right? Because kind of like what you both said is that maybe that new thing that's being asked for, uh, it could be some great new thing that might be of more ROI. Uh, maybe you should do it. Maybe you should just stop and say like, oh, okay, that's the thing that we should focus on instead but, you know, this kind of implies, this kind of sounds like, when I think of scope creep, it's because we already have this, like, big waterfall kind of approach right. project. And it's like, no, 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 no. We, we can't make our deadline in six weeks from now unless we get this task done this week. And then we need to hit our next milestone the week or two later. And we got to keep going down this path. And if you introduce this new feature, I don't care how valuable it is. It's going to throw off my ability to get to that six week mark. Yeah. Yep. So I, it kind of feels like a, you're already in a negative situation if this is even a thing, but it is a real thing. So how do you deal with scope creep in an MVP situation? Well, where it really matters, though, I think is what you just got at is scope creep only matters if you're still being held to the coals on a particular date, right? That's always where these things come into play. Like, I don't think any developer would really have any kind of major problem with, oh, you want this feature in? Cool. Give me the time to do it. I'll put it in, right? It's always when, oh, we need you to get this done, but that date's not moving. And we also have five other features we're adding, right? Like, that's when scope scope creeps a problem. Now, to the point of the MVP, the whole purpose of the MVP is get something out there so that people can get their hands on it so that you can start iterating, right? And maybe that's why the scope creep comes in because, hey, we saw this. We really like this feature. What if we could do it like this, right? Well, by the way, too, the way I was using the MVP term, I guess I wasn't – maybe we should call it the, the MVF because it wasn't necessarily meaning like the just the minimal product, but whatever the feature is. Like oh, let's just get you. the features out there as soon as we can. And if I'm working on some new feature that – uh you know, somebody's like, oh, that's going to take three weeks. And then somebody asks for a new one that might be more valuable. Like maybe it would be wise to just go ahead and turn to that one. Like why, why continue on this long one? Right. Yeah. 
Cool. All right. So we all like scope creep. <laughs> we hate deadlines. We like scope creep. I, I don't mind scope creep. I like making stuff better. I think so. Like is this maybe our favorite anti pattern? This and gold plating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was, far, I was going to say the only creep that we would like would be if it's done by Radiohead. Otherwise, <laughs> we don't want it. Yeah. Oh, nice. Uh, next one up, uh, smoke and mirrors, uh, demonstrating unimplemented functions as if they were already implemented. And uh, you can see this in every E3 demo ever. Well, not even E3, just every demo. Demo. Yeah, every demo. <laughs> I like the ones this is like, it's got a thing in the corner. It's like real gameplay footage shown. And you get the game, and you're like, uh-uh. <laughs> what, what game was that? Well, I'm, I bought that game, not this one. <laughs> it doesn't even so have that, to be something intangible, though, by the way. Because yeah, have you ever absolutely. been to a, like a car show? Where they're mm-hmm. showing off like new cars, and you're like, oh, like here's this shiny brand new whatever it is, Corvette, Camaro, whatever. You know, here's a new Fisker Karma. Sometimes that car that's sitting there on the showroom floor at that at that uh, that trade show or whatever, it's really not a functional car. Yeah, doesn't even have <laughs> or, an engine, right? Or if it is functional, it's barely functional. Like it's enough to drive it on and off the ramp. Yeah. Hey, but yeah. let's get back to this whole thing about Joe playing video games. This is not technically true. He buys lots of games yeah. and he doesn't actually play them. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. None of my analogies tonight have been about actually playing games. It's all a bit about me watching the, the release dates and getting involved in the, in the meta game around the games. The <laughs> Nothing about actually playing them. Yeah. The meta game around the game. <laughs> He's so yeah. excited yeah. about Destiny 2 coming out. Not because he wants to play it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I spent more time researching how I was going to pre-order it than I'm, I'm actually playing it. You haven't already pre-ordered it? I did, I did. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, I'm going to pick it up. All right, go ahead. I, maybe. I, I apologize. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so Spoken Mirrors is an idiom for a deceptive, fraudulent, insubstantial explanation and description. What's funny to me is uh, that's such a common term. I've heard that so many times in programming scenarios that I... I never really stopped to think about like what the term actually kind of means or what it came from. Um, so I thought it was kind of funny like in looking at the article to, to actually have it refer to like the illusionists or the, the magicians you would see that would actually literally have like smoke on stage and mirrors and, um, you know, little ropes or whatever, little strings doing these magic tricks and kind of tricking the audience into thinking one thing's happening when really it's like, you know, eight people backstage uh, throwing stuff around and, and you know, lining up smoke and mirrors to make things uh, look like they're happening when they're really not. And uh, so one example <laughs> recently had, I just had to mention was uh, American, this American life did a great uh, episode on um, the things really going behind on behind uh, the, uh, the magic tricks and like focusing specifically on the smoke and the mirrors. And uh, they mentioned the, uh, the eighties event where David Copperfield made the statue of Liberty disappear on live TV. So we'll have a link to that. But anyway, um, obviously he didn't really make the such a liberty disappear. Um, or did he? <laughs> Another good uh, recent example is when Volkswagen got a lot of trouble for um, kind of faking the mileage. So if they saw they were being tested, they would kind of report one set of results that weren't necessarily real. And that ended up with, uh, like, what was it? The head engineer ended up uh, 40 months in jail and 200K in uh, fines over in Europe. Yep. So <laughs> this can get you in trouble. 
But uh, I think everyone's done this. I mean, every demo, you know, we talked about it. We always put our, our best face forward. This is something, you know, it, it's another way of saying uh, another uh, kind of meaning to the word gold plating is you, you kind of take something, you try to make it look as good as possible. You kind of fluff in some stuff that doesn't um, necessarily belong there. And I think this is really common, like as we kind of alluded to. But the problem is when you sell something that you don't have and you can't make and the customer buys it and you can't deliver or you can't deliver when, you know, you say you, you've got it. So, you know, I put in a little note here saying, is this an anti-pattern or a way of life? And I think pretty much any demo ever, you know, there's just going to be some, some bit of magic going on, whether it's caching stuff for a page, just running too slow in a way that you couldn't really do in production, or maybe mocking some data to look, you know, really nice when that, that data is realistically not ever going to look that way. Um, so, Man, I've had. I definitely think it's both. I've had bosses say, "Hey, make that data look like a curve." And I was like, "Wait yep. a second, no, hold, it doesn't." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, no, it, it needs to fit a bell curve. Really? Yep. Yep. So, so you do it, and then two weeks later, when it gets rolled out to you know production customer, <laughs> they're like, "Hey, this doesn't look like a bell curve. What's mm-hmm. up?" All right. Yeah. Get your on da- this Your data's bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I often think about, like, when I think of smoke and mirrors, I think of situations where it's like, um, like, if, for example, you literally just clicked on something and it only showed an image of what you really want the thing to look like in the end, but it's totally, there's no interaction about it, it's just an image. But then as you were Mm -hmm. talking, I was thinking of, uh, do you guys watch, have you ever watched Silicon Valley? Oh, man, it's amazing. Joe, do you you watch it? a little bit. So, do you recall the episode where? Oh, would this be a spoiler alert? Maybe yeah, not. <clears throat> where? Where? Do you recall the episode where uh, they hired a company that would just sit there and uh, bang on their app so that their app could get uh, inflate inflate yes. their numbers? Yes. Right. Uh-huh. I guess that would be like our modern day equivalent of smoke and mirrors. Yep. You know, buy some reviews. Yep. Right? Totally. Yeah, there's no question. That's a good one. So, yeah, or like every beer commercial ever. Uh, what do you mean? Well, I mean, like I've been to bars. I've cracked open a, a Budweiser, right? And the things that happened in those commercials did not happen to me. And so I feel like they sold me on an image of what my lifestyle could be if I bought that twelve pack. And let me tell you, it was nothing like it. Well, well then gems would go with the same. Uh, right. We'd have to go with the same philosophy th- for that, right? Wait, why are you that's saying? right. Yeah, I mean, like the pictures on the yeah the gems and like the, all the advertisements show like the you know the the twenty uh, year old like six pack abs and uh, that's not the reality when I go in there. <laughs> every every any kind of beauty product Axe Axe body spray would totally be smoke and mirrors. Oh, man. I mean, it's a good thing, right? Because if they showed you, if the you know the gym ad showed you what it was really like, which is like looking at that little fob on your key ring and feeling bad about paying that for months on end, <laughs> you know, no one would ever sign up. <laughs> and you can't sell disappointment. Uh, you got to sell the dream, man. The dream. Yeah. Uh, all right, so we're down to the last one here that we've got, and this is Brooks Law. And man, I really like this one because I've been hurt by this one. So 
Brooks Law is adding more resources to a project to increase its velocity when the project is already slowed down by coordination overhead. So basically what they're talking about is when you try and add more people to a project, when you're towards the end of the project and you're potentially running late, and the thought is, we'll just add more people and it'll just get done. You know, if, if we've got 10 people on it right now and we add 10 more people, it'll get done twice as fast, right? Man, that's a lie. So, no, 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 that's totally true. If you have nine women, they can have a baby in one month. That's not true. Wait, what? <laughs> if you plan it out perfectly, if you do a good job enough of orchestrating, then you can scale indefinitely. All right, I'm going to get to the end of this and then I'm going <laughs> to scream. Um, so, so there's there's part there's parts to this as to why that's not even possible, right? So the first one is ramp up time is real. So yeah. when you have ramp up time, and what they talk about by that is it takes time away from existing productive people that now need to educate the newer people on the team, right? That's real. That's happening. It's not like people are just going to come in and look at the code and just start coding, right? They're going to need to get up to date on what the business rules and everything else are. That's real. The newer members may even slow things down further by introducing bugs because they didn't understand how everything worked in the first place. That's real. Communication overhead is also real, right? You add 10 more people to a project, that's 10 more people that you got to talk to, whether you're synchronizing on what you're doing or those people are having to intercommunicate on things that they're working on and pieces they're touching, pull requests, code reviews, everything else increases. The I don't even read the emails from the two people I do work with. Now right? I got to read it from 10 more. Exactly. And, and, and so the communication overhead's real. It doesn't scale. Like it just does not scale. Well, it's one of those things that human interaction, you can't make it go faster. It just doesn't happen. Um, and I already did that one. So here's another one that I thought was really interesting that is true. There's a limited divisibility of tasks. And, and the example they gave was you have a hotel room, right? And, and that hotel room needs to be clean when somebody checks out. Well, you have one person clean it right now. Okay, add two people. They'll do it twice as fast. Okay, cool. Add two more people. Are they going to get it done four times as fast as that first person? Maybe. But then if you jump up to eight, these people are going to start getting in each other's way, right? There's going to be bumping bellies in the hallway the whole time. Right. And that's the thing, right? People are trying to get back to the cart. They're having to wait for other people to get out of the way of the cart. Somebody's in the way of the bed. Whatever. It's real. And, and the part that frustrates me about this is I've actually been on projects where this was the tactic that was taken. And I'm going to give two things that, that drove me crazy. Um, one was that this approach was taken and it killed my productivity completely. 100%. I was one of the main developers on a project and we ramped it up like this, add, added like double the amount of people to it and things slowed down, which seems crazy, but things got slower than they were previously. But it was because there was so much coordination going on and people had to understand everything so much that time was spent from some of the main developers just trying to make sure everybody was on task properly, right? That's frustrating. So there is definitely a point where you can't grow it that far. Um, and then the other thing is I had a conversation with somebody one time and, and it's frustrating 
I'm not trying to belittle people that work in certain environments and probably anybody that's listening to this podcast will understand what I'm saying. But if you have somebody that's a warehouse worker that's stocking shelves, that is something that's fairly easy to train, right? These products go on this shelf with this label. These rows are labeled this way, and this is how you go find it. Treating a software developer like they're a cog in a wheel is not realistic because there is real educational ramp up time for that person to even become productive at a certain level. And then if that person leaves that project, there is now time spent by other people to pick up where that person left off. Like there's a cognitive gap there, right? And, and I've seen managers before try to treat developers like they're cogs and that does not work. It doesn't, it can't because there's too much real knowledge of how systems interact, how they integrate, what is copied and pasted somewhere versus what's a standalone. Like these are all things that you can't take for granted. And a software developer is somebody that has a lot of, uh, they have a lot of knowledge invested in things and that's not an easy transfer. I mean, heck, even Joe, uh, you've done a very good job of this in the past that I've seen where if you knew somebody was coming onto a project behind you, you would kind of create like a, a, like a bullet point document of things that, you know, these are things that you need to know about, right? It took you time to create that. That other person, if they do read it, it'll help them out, but they're still not going to have the entire picture, right? Like the knowledge transfer is not easy. And this one really drives me crazy when I see people try and do this. I, as you were talking, I was kind of thinking like it's <clears throat> oftentimes software developers are treated like um, you, you said cogs in the wheel. But I was kind of thinking like if we were to make another analogy where it's like, well, how many people, you know, if if I wanted to build houses, right, like we're, we're treated m- it's, it's thought of some, some more like that where it's like, okay, well, the more developers I have, the more houses I can build, right? And and that might work out fine in that scenario, but, you know, the house next door doesn't have any bearing on the house that I'm working on, right? And whereas software development, you know, your development impacts my development. So it's kind of more like, Instead of instead of equating building software to building a house, it would be more like surgeons, right? Mm-hmm. You can't just add more surgeons to the surgery to make the surgery faster or more productive, right? right. There's there's a limitation there as to like how effective that's going to be. Yep, and, and that's also why I see it more like engineering. Truly, do because. There's things that all work together. It's not like you're working. Yeah, see what you did there. See, yeah, full circle. This also brings up something though that I feel like is important that that goes along with this is a lot of times even if you have subgroups working on pieces, you end up duplicating efforts, right? And now you have things that, that diverge in various different places. And I and I hate the term technical debt because it, it gets overused a lot, but but it's real because yeah. now you have this huge group of people that are all working on things. They're all doing things somewhat the same, but somewhat different. And so patterns, patterns don't get repeated, but code gets copied and, and changed all over the place. And now you have this, this huge mess 
that you can't even really work on in a clean way anymore. So like, there's just so much wrong with this whole notion of just add more resources to the project. Right. Like that's, I don't want to say it jokingly though, but I feel like the, the nine women having a baby in a month, that's like the canonical response back to this, you know, whenever it's like, Oh, well let's just add more, uh, more developers to it. And then we'll, we'll be able to get it done faster or on time or whatever. And it's like, really? That's not how it works. Well, look at it like this too. Even with a computer, right? If you get a um, dual processor machine, it's not twice as fast. There's overhead in managing the threads between those processors to make sure things get done, right? It's the same thing with human communication, except we're way slower at it. Wait a minute. Are you trying to talk me out of a Core i9? No, no, no. Oh, the processor oh. itself is fine, but if you start getting okay. quad quad processor setups and stuff, right? Like it's not four times as fast as that single core. It's probably three times as fast. But there yeah, is frame rates drop when you add a second video card a lot of times. Yeah, I, it, it's really weird, right? It, it doesn't make sense, but there's definitely that that point of diminishing returns, right? Like I'm not saying that having four people might not be better than two. It might be depending on the project size. But then you go to eight. And it might cause more problems than what it helped. And and it all depends on the task at hand and the project and all that. But it's not this magical lever you can pull and it just works. Mm -hmm. Right. So Now, could you imagine taking a big software project and saying, let's say it's the three of us. It's like, all right, you get files, Alan, that are uh, A through J. Outlaw, you've got K through O and I'm going to take Q through Z. All right. So, you know, let's meet back in a week. Right. Right. It's just, it's just not going to happen. It doesn't work like that. There's going to be a lot of overhead. There's going to be communication. We add, add a fourth person, you're adding another communication chain. So it's exponentially increasing the number of communications that can potentially happen. Well, and I don't know. Uh, you're just increasing complexity overall. Yeah. Well, I don't know about you guys, but the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to rename all my files to start with A. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> done this and will be done. easier to manage. Uh, Could you imagine working like that? That would be horrible. Man. Like, hey, I need to change over this file. <laughs> But it's funny. So the conversations come up before, like, you know, um, let's set up teams where everybody's kind of got the, their, they've all got the same type of skills. And I'm like, wait a second, wait, don't shoehorn me in in a UI. Don't shoehorn me in into a server side type thing or a database type. Like, I like doing all this stuff. Hey, shoehorn me, baby. <laughs> that sounds good. You want to do some C sharp? Come on, all man. Day. You know you're gonna miss some J- JS. Hey, wait. Nope. Every one of your YouTube videos is JavaScript. I don't even want to hear about it. Yeah, that's because it, it's necessary to make things happen. Oh, dang it. If you want to affect change in the programming world, you're going to be doing JavaScript. Uh, you said it. Yep. <laughs> <sighs> dang it. All right. So that that pretty much wraps all these here. Um, as always, we make these things funnier and longer than what we had intended to. Um, <laughs> So uh, w- the resource we like for this is the Wikipedia article where we went through the patterns for the project management. So uh, we'll have a link in the show notes for that. And now it's for my second favorite part of the show. It's the tip of the week. Yes. All right. So I'll kick us off here with using multiple desktops in Windows 10. So if you haven't already been using this feature, you totally should. You totally can. Uh, I'll include a CNET desert has a great write up on using, uh, windows 10 multiple desktops and how to navigate between all of them. So I'm not going to go through all of it. Um, but there's, you know, definitely they include 
visually how to do it, uh, all the different keystrokes for the different operations on how to do it. But uh, I will say the one downside is that I really wish that they had um, like a multi-finger swipe action like Mac OS has. That's the one place where I feel like it's lacking. Because if you wanted to go between desktops, sure, you could Windows key control. What is that? I went to the site and the video started playing. I apologize. Well, why would you do that? <laughs> CNET. That's not awkward. <laughs> Blast you. Uh, oh, man. So you could you could use keys keystrokes to switch between desktops like Windows control left arrow or Windows key control right arrow. And that's all fine and dandy. But there is something so nice about like just a three finger swipe between desktops in, uh, in Mac OS. Man, I can't remember, but I think if you have one of the, uh, touch pads for the, I forget what they're called, but they're like the windows certified. I think they had that ability. Um, I don't know that like external hardware would, but I know on the laptops, it, it seems like it did. I, I can't swear to it. I'd have to find out. But anyway, I, I do agree. The, the, the swipe on Mac is beautiful. Mm -hmm. So anyways, all right, go ahead. Sorry. Yep. All the same kind of functionality that you would expect to the ability to move an application from one desktop to the next desktop, uh, things like that. Yeah. All there. Yes, that's beautiful. I love it. That's that's amazing. Mine is actually came out of a necessity this past week. I had a a merge of code gone horribly wrong. Like I don't know what I did, and I didn't realize it until I had pulled in a few other things. And so I've I've known that you could do a git checkout hard and go back in time to a particular git commit. I did not know about git ref log though. So I've always done git log. If you're on the command line, you type in git log and it'll show you like the past commits and hashes and all that stuff. But git ref log will actually give you something a little bit prettier and easier to read. And, and you can literally just say, all right, git reset and then head at 10 or something like that to go back to that one. And it makes it very easy or git checkout hard. And then, you know, head at 10 or something like that and it will take you right back so get ref log is really what i'm getting at here and i've got a link to the stack overflow answer that that had gotten me in this direction and kind of saved my hide on something that i had screwed up all right that's that's pretty interesting that i didn't expect to get tip from you doesn't usually happen but this one helped yeah. me. It, it made me happy it uh, looks a little sad <laughs> No, I'm it's happy like to talk about looking Get out Reflog. the window wistfully. I'm happy to talk about Get Reflog. <laughs> That's not something you can share because your Reflog is going to be specific to you. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Oh, maybe that's why it was easier for me to read then, because I could look and see what I had been doing. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's it's your log of actions. That's beautiful. Are, are you get are you getting ready to get stormed on? Yeah, it's like super thundering, and uh, what it means is my dogs are freaking out, and I have them locked in this room with me. 
And so, like, for the last half hour, they've been, like, bumping into the chair. And, like, I'm getting pawed to death. They're walking all over the mic stand. So even if you don't hear the thunder, you're probably going to hear the bang, bang, bang of, like, someone walking on a mic stand. Nice. This is going back to the episode one through five days, right? This is good. Yeah. (laughs) Good old days. Well, uh, uh, my tip of the week is uh, haveibeenpwned.com, which we've mentioned before, but it's never actually been a tip. Oh, and so uh, this cheated. is a website run by Troy Hunt. Awesome website. You can type in your email address and see if you exist on any of a bunch of different data dumps that Troy has collected from various nefarious uh, portions of the internet. And you can actually sign up for it too, so it'll send you a little notification. So, for example, uh, I subscribed to it, and when my email address was for the like the umpteenth time. Um, you know, showed up in some sort of data dump from a recruiter database or from Adobe or from, you know, wherever, I got a notification that said that, hey, uh, your username and password has been dumped out on the internet. You should consider changing it. And so it's just a nice way of kind of knowing ahead of time uh, what's going on. And um, you can actually go there and search your email and see what all you've been um, been dumped in. And I did actually search all our coding box emails and we are safe so far. But all my personal ones have been boned. <laughs> so oh, yeah, totally. That's horrible. Yeah, so use the password manager. <laughs> Jeez. The, the worst part is, is half of them that I'm seeing on here are like spam lists. It's not like they got any data stolen, but your email's yep. out there. And um, also, he doesn't put the passwords up. Um, I, th- I don't know if he puts the actual like email list. I don't think he uh, exposes them anywhere. But uh, I know he also does a lot of work to like strip passwords and stuff. So you can't see if your password's up there. But a lot of times, um, you know, at least for a lot of the breaches, he said, if you follow him on Twitter, which I also recommend, or also just have I been pwned, which is P-W-N-E-D, he'll say a lot of times, like, this data dump of 70 billion records included emails and passwords. So watch out. Ridiculous. There's a lot of people do still reuse passwords, so. Yep. Good tool. Yep. Scary. And uh, I think that's pretty much it for the show. We talked about um, project management, anti-patterns. Um, we talked about our favorites and the ones we uh, hate the most. Um, so that's about it. So with that, we ask that you subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And be sure to leave us a review by heading to www.codingblocks.net slash review. And while you're up there, check out all our show notes, examples, discussions, and more. And send your feedback, questions, and rants to our Slack channel, codingblocks.slack.com. And follow us on Twitter, at CodingBlocks. And uh, head over to the website, codingblocks.net, where you can find uh, all sorts of social links to the top of the page. You guys have heard of dad jokes, right? No. No? The corny jokes that dads would say. Alan, what do you do on the internet all day? Yeah, man. This is not I the don't... first time we've had a problem like this. What is going on over there? Look, uh, look, Do guys. you even use the internet? I don't. Like, I literally... Do you even know what a meme is? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I do know what a meme is. I've seen those. I've heard uh, of them. Um, yeah, I, you know what? Why I mean, do you build such a hackintosh if you're not even going to use the internet? That's the thing. Like, I, I, I now treat the internet like... Like I treat shopping like I have a a 
a particular thing that I want to find out about, and I'm going to go find out about it, and then I'm going to sign off the internet, right? Like that's we're gonna have to start yes, yes, knowing with Alan. <laughs> I think so. I, I, you know what, man, Joe, you've hit on something we here, man. We shouldn't do this, man. That's wrong. <laughs> this that that is our objective for the next episode. We're oh. gonna yes, yes, no with Alan, man. That's an amazing idea. All right, yes. I guess I'm gonna have to start okay, reading Reddit. Well, so. <laughs> Yeah, so there's this thing out there referred to as dad jokes, and those are the stupid little corny jokes that dads would share, okay? But there's like this programmer equivalent of it that has popped up on Reddit that I thought I might share some of these if you have a moment. I have a moment. All right. How else am I going to get my internet fills? Apparently through (laughs) us. (laughs) You know... (laughs) It's bad. If you think that Google is the internet then that's when you know that you're not using it correctly, right? Like the internet's the mail. little E, right? That I, I have my very small slice of the world. All right. Why did the function get divorced? Why did the functions get divorced? I don't know. They had so many arguments. Oh, God. <laughs> That's, that's, that's kind of good. Yeah, it's pretty good. I get that. dad programmer joke. <laughs> why, why was the string so loud? It was immutable. There you go, because it was immutable. Oh, uh, okay. Why was the list so uninteresting? Uh, I mean, it was empty. Like, <laughs> it was forward only? It was one dimensional. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's a reach. <laughs> Why did the int drown? I don't know. I don't know any of these. Why did the int drown? I don't know. Because it wasn't floating. Oh, come uh, on. Uh, let's see. What would be another one? Did you hear the one about the global variable? Everyone else did. (laughs) That's way funnier. (laughs) I knew you'd like that one. I knew you'd like that one. I'm going to have to go before these dogs freaking run me over. All right. Last one. Why was the class so good at everything? I don't know. It, I don't know. It was a super class. Oh, man. <laughs> Terrible.